This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the Old City of Jerusalem at Asian Torah overlooking the Temple Mount. You're going to be sponsored throughout your life. People are going to be paying you money for nothing because in the end you're going to be doing stuff. Everything you'll do, every service you'll ever offer is your pleasure. And raise your hand in the room if you ever did something for somebody that was a hassle. You did something for somebody that was a hassle. That's it. Raise your hand if it was a hassle. And you did something for somebody. Keep your hand up. What is this? Give, give a vub. I don't want an L. Okay, give a vub. You did something for somebody. Okay, keep your hands up. If you can think of doing something for somebody who was quite random. I mean, it wasn't a close friend or family member. It was someone who was a bit random. Might have been, you took them where they needed to go, but you all done something for someone quite random. Very good. And keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. If it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Okay? And the same people have their hand up. You just thought of the wrong person. So the same people keep their hand up because it is your pleasure. People are going to be doing stuff for each other in this world, and it's our pleasure to do that. And if you figure out, which I bless you to figure out what service you can offer this world, it's your pleasure. The fact that someone hands you money for that service is their pleasure. <laughs> it's your pleasure, too. You know, what a blessing that someone will actually hand you money for a service you provided. Because, you know, if, how do you know you found your spot in the service you're meant to provide is that you do it even if they didn't hand you money. And by the way, for those of you who are complaining about the money, amount of money you're handed for your services, don't focus on the amount of money. Just focus on the service. Fix it. Make your service better. Make it broader. Make it more thorough. You're never to focus on the amount of money you're making for the services you render. Your only job is to focus on the service you're rendering. Stay focused all the time on the service that you bring to the world. It's your pleasure with or without the money. The fact that you get paid for the service you render is a bonus for the difference you make in the world. Because making a difference in this world is oxygen. It's life or death. People who don't make a difference in the world can't get out of bed. It's one of the major sources of depression, especially in young men, or even older men who never found it. <laughs> older men. Making a difference in this world is your service. The reason why women don't suffer depression the same way over this as men is because built into them is one of the most major purposes. And that's the ability to rate, have and raise children. It's built in you. Your life is automatically 10 times more meaningful than any man in this room. And while men are donors to that event, the men are really needing to make that difference outside the home, which is horrific for women because you've been fighting your mother for your father's attention for years. And, you know, the best thing that can happen to you is they get in a fight and you come and, like, bandage him up. You know, like, that's the best. But she'll be back to elbow you right out of the way again because mothers are great at keeping their daughters away from their husbands. And the, so you finally get a husband of your own, except the only meaning that's going to come out of his life in a deep way will be the service he renders outside the home. Now, men, I'm telling you to render service in the home too if you want to have a happy home and you want your kids to be healthy people. Make sure you also render service in the home. You know, don't just sit there like a king behind, you know, your Shabbos table. But, uh, but you know, render some service there. To, not so much that your wife needs it. She probably would prefer you sat there like a king if you have a proper marriage. But so your children see. Let your children see that, that daddy's not a bum. You know, that he, that he gets up and 
helps serve something or maybe helps cook something for Shabbos or clean something before Shabbos. People who offer you money when you're a young man or a young woman, take it with joy, take it with pride. People who are too proud to take money when they're young, first of all, they're not going to amount to anything because, they're, because you need training. I mean, if you're going to get anywhere in the difference you're going to make in life, you're going to have to know how to do something really well because we're only going to give you that money if you can do it really well because there's another 200 people we have an option of giving that money to. So you better learn to do it well. And the only way you're going to do it well is if you're trained. And the only way you're going to get trained is if you have money. And so for people to sponsor you, you should be proud to do that. Let people give you money. You're young. And when you get money, when you're older, give young people money. I sponsor young people in all kinds of, all kinds of things. Let people sponsor you. And if you're too proud to take the money and you don't know what's really going on, what's really going on is you think you're a piece of garbage and you're using pride as a cover-up. But meanwhile, you're, now you're really stuck in a hole because you can't even train to get good at anything to render your services and make a difference out of yourself. The whole time you're being sponsored anyway. Later you'll be sponsored for services that are your pleasure to give. Now you're not quite ready to render services. Take money to train to be ready to give services. The whole point is making a difference out of your life. You having shared the oxygen of the planet should have meant something. Should have made a difference for somebody in this world. People will pay you for that later. But if you need to train in that, so happily and with pride, be happy to have people invest in you and stop playing the poor card and why you can't do any of the opportunities that are out there. Take every opportunity you got and put your name on the dotted line, commit to it, the money will be there. One way or another, the money will be there. You'll have divine assistance because God favors committed people. Now, I've put this on the board a few times, but I'll do it once more. Just to really break this down into its, its real parts, is that those people who don't get anywhere live in a world that's called decide. But there's a whole other world that you think you're in, but you're not, which is called commit. There's a world called decide, the world called commit. The reason I put them in a Venn diagram is because when you decide, you thought you committed, but you didn't. You're still in decision mode. And what's the proof? The proof is, is that the way you get to any decision is based on reasons. You can't make a decision without reasons. Reasons lead to decisions. The word decide it has the root side in it because it means to eliminate. Pesticide, right? Homicide, genocide, suicide. Those, are, those have elimination in it. Why? Because you, based on reasons for and against the options, you eliminate options. You need reasons to commit as well. And then... No, no, no reasons to commit whatsoever. You need to get to decide. Because then once you've made your decision based on reasons, because you can't make a decision without reasons. But the problem is many of you think you already committed when you're actually still in decision mode. And what's the proof? Is that the reasons you decided are gone, and then you're out of there. Or new reasons came up to do something else, and you're out of there again. Which means there's nothing to rely on. You're, you're, you're like the weather. 
You know, it's one day it's hot, one day it's cold. There's no way to know you're committed to anything. And here's most important is God doesn't know you're committed to anything. Or he knows you're not, actually. God knows you're not committed to anything. And therefore, why back you? Why back you when you could back out? Why back you when you might back out? And there's always reasons. There's always reasons because when the tough gets when the tough gets going, yeah, when the going gets tough, you get out. Think about it, every one of you. When the tough get when the when the going gets tough, you get out. Every time the going gets tough, you're out. And if you smoke grass, if you smoke weed, you're like times a thousand. Why are you bringing that up right now? Discussion at lunch. Uh huh. Okay. I just wasn't expecting that. But the um, anyway. But apparently everything's growing in popularity these days. But the but when the when when the going gets tough, you get out. Why do you get out? Because reasons have come up in such a way that you're out. You quit every time. And people are doing this like people think they put a ring on someone's finger. Or got a ring. They think they're committed. You think you're committed? You think you moved over to commitment? You think you went... Yeah, you decided on that person because they had the most pros, the least cons. Intuition was buzzing. And you committed. You think you're committed? Well, let's see how you treat that person when you're feeling insecure. Let's see how you treat that person when they come home late. Let's see how you treat that person when they forget to call. Let's see how you treat that person when, when you're in a low mood. How committed are you really? And are you really that committed to your own parents? How long you stay on your phone with your mother when she calls you randomly with unsolicited advice? She makes you feel like you're nine. You stay on the phone with the person who makes you feel like you're nine? Or do they always call at the wrong time? How long you spend on the phone with your father with all of his unsolicited advice when you feel like you're nine? He can never call at the right time. It's always the wrong time when your father calls. Every time your father calls, it's the wrong time. So you think you're committed to those people, but you're really in decision mode because you let reason stop you all the time in every single way. Now, how does the flow chart work? You go from reasons to decisions. From decisions, you go to what? Commitments. Once you're in commitment mode, is there anything underneath there? Everyone try the Spanish word nada. Try nada. Nada. What does nada mean? Nothing. There's nothing under there. These are the words. These are the famous words that people love to use these days. I'm what? I'm in. Those are the famous words. I'm in. You know the words I'm in? Never use those words, by the way, if you're not in. When you say you're in for something, I don't care if your bus gets a flat tire. I don't care if they close the roads because of snow. Just show up. Because you said you're in, you show up no matter what. Become that person. Become the kind of person that when she or he says I'm in, that people can count on that. And you will never lack anything in your life. You will always have what's called LSD, which stands for large siata. You will always have 
large siyata deshmaya, which means that God is going to back you because he knows you don't back out. God will back you because he knows you don't back out. Once you use those words, I'm in. Once you get committed to something, you're in no matter what. You start getting wind in your sails. Things start working out. You start living a successful life because you're committed to something. When you live committed to something, there's a difference you make. When you're in decision mode, you make no difference because we can't count on you making that difference. And therefore, you're not the kind of person anyone expects anything out of. And that's not very healthy either. Because obviously you all want to be self-generated, but you can't be self-generated every day. We all have ups and downs. So when you're, when you're in a non-self-generated day, everyone else is going to generate you because they know you make a difference. You're someone who commits to things so that even on a day where you can't really do much from within, everyone will create it for you from without because you're known already as someone who's a committed type of person. When you say you're in, you're in. Hi, ladies. There's two seats right here. You can even put them together if you want. Oh, you're from that last group I just taught? Or there's a group of women over there. Okay. Now, I think I've made my point enough clear here. Large Siyata Dushmaya comes to people who are committed people. People who are in. Let's practice it in a song. Everyone try the words, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. You ready? So it goes like this. I'm in. Try it again. Everyone try it. Think of something you're in for. I don't know. Judaism. No. I'm in. Okay, you got it? So. <laughs> but you want to think about your life. Like, what are you really in for? And if you're not in, get in. Meaning, meaning figure out what you got to do to get in. There's, I know people who are not in in their Judaism. But every time I speak to them privately for 15 minutes, it becomes all too clear that they're missing major, major, like giant areas of information. They're just missing a lot. They were raised observant and like stuff went wrong here, there, and everywhere. And they had nowhere to blame but God. And so they're out. But they're just missing major parts of understanding of things. I mean, they don't even realize that your belief in God counts. I, I'm going to say something very deep right now. Ready for this? Ladies, ready for this deep one? Your belief in God, your belief in God revolves, or no, the foundations of your true belief in God as an adult requires that you suffer. Your belief in God as an adult requires that you suffer. Because only someone who suffers starts asking important questions. I've met so many kids who are protected by their parents so intensely, usually in the more Haredi circles, they were so protected by their parents, so overprotected, especially the Hasidic European ones, post-war Europeans. So now their kids are like teens and stuff, and young 20s. I know kids who are so overprotected that they have almost no belief in God because they never got hurt. They never, they, they, never got, they never touched the edge of life. 
that all the questions start coming to. You need to touch something, and it needs to touch you back with a fist. You know, you gotta you gotta push some limit in a way that you get punched, and then you start to understand a little bit of where you live, and you can start asking important questions because you're suffering. You know, a black eye from I don't mean literally a black eye. No one should get punched here. I bless you all not to get punched, especially with Purim coming. We're getting punched increase the chance of getting punched increases by like like three hundred percent. But the but I bless you, and I bless you. No altercation whatsoever. I'm for him. Should just be only joy, peace, and love. So the um, <laughs> how many times have you been punched? I'm for him. I got punched last week. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I have a I have a tradition of punching somebody, meaning like really taking somebody down to the ground. Every third perm. Every third perm. But I thank God I broke it after nine years. Last year was my third perm. My kids were just watching me the entire time. And they're just watching the party and watching people coming in and out. And they're just... My kids are like taking bets on who I'm probably going to take out this year. And, and, and of course, I'm the last guy you would think could take anybody out. But I grew up in my school. There, you had to fight to live every day. And so, like... You can't see it anymore because my skin's got a little older. But all my years, you just look at my knuckles and see teeth marks. Like, like I don't know if you could see that little one. That's teeth. It was my whole my whole knuckles are just different people's teeth from years of missing their nose. And <laughs> and yeah. So anyway, I have to take someone down every three years. But now I'm done. Now it's all just peace and love. No more taking people down. Please, God. <laughs> I really don't want to take anyone down. But, they, but you realize I'm poor. And when people have been drinking, there's zero tolerance. For what? I'm not sure. <laughs> no. No. The, um, anyway, but this, this place of being in, that's where the power is. You gotta, but you've got to suffer a little to get in. To get in, you got to suffer a little. Because what happens if all you people who've had your nose wiped for you since you're a little kid, you, you, it's really hard to commit to anything because you're just, even the slightest suffering, you're already running the other way. And you, you, don't, know, you don't know how to stick to something without... When you commit something, it's, it co- it's fraught with danger. And the funny thing is, is that all of you are going to get married, hopefully in the next year or soon. And you're, you're going to be suffering so badly because part of marriage is tremendous suffering. And that's why you have to be in wedlock or you'd be out. Notice, um, I'll give you an easy proof, but I don't think we have anyone raised secular in this room. Anyone here is raised secular? No one here is raised secular? We're at, we're at Ephesus? Like we've, we've met... Yeah, but you don't count. You're like, you're part of the furniture here. Anyone, no one here was raised secular? Not one person? <sighs> you were raised secular? Sort of. That doesn't count. Yeah, but your family made Shabbos and everything? Yeah. Hey, we finally made it. Like, instead of, instead of 98% of the class being raised observant, now it's 100%. Oh, he was definitely raised observant, this guy. <laughs> Forget it. Hey, you missed the LSD part. That was part of the class. So, you were the one with the comment, right? Yes, I was the one with the comment. Yeah. You had a question, by the way. I did. What was it? Um, 
regarding what you said before, when you're doing when you're doing your passion, and then you say you make money, and then you're not ex- exactly excited with the money. How do you? I said, if the money isn't enough, right? So basically, basically look at your services. You don't look at the, the money. So, just long story short, I. I I deal with this guy that has dementia, right? Then, then she decided she wanted to start paying me. For some reason, it, the whole the whole thing of it changed because how would he, how would we go back and fully go back to doing it just because I want to do this when I want to help? Why did everything change with you getting money? What changed? That's what I don't know. I don't know what it was that you need to do some work on yourself. That, yeah. yeah, you got to do some work on yourself and get your self worth built up. What does the self worth have to do with? Uh, how much you pay an hour? Move it to a hundred. You. What'd you lose? I lost the, the true want to do the mitzvah because of the money I got involved. No, you didn't. You think that's what happened? I'll tell you what happened. What happened was someone started paying you for your worth, not your intrinsic worth, but the worth of your handiwork. And it started freaking you out. Because you have an issue with money. And guess what? So does everyone else in this room. And we, none of us feel worth anything, really. And so, it, you know how long it's taken me to feel worth the money that people pay me? And I'm telling you, I'm not there yet. I'm still not there yet. Money and self-worth are so wrapped up, you have no idea. And especially in men, it's totally, the wire, we all have our wires totally crossed. And a lot of us are allergic to money. A lot of us are allergic to money because, because it's too painful to face the fact that so much of our worth is dependent upon money. It hurts us so badly to think that society would evaluate us based on our earning ability or what we actually earn. That we're going to go allergic to money. We're going to pretend money doesn't matter. We're going to say, oh, money doesn't matter for anything. Like that's changed. that's all weird. All that changed was but that she she opened up your your whole insecurity about your own worth. That got opened up now, and now you're stuck in some weird spiral. It has nothing to do with anything. Just get back to delivering services and do your own personal work on how you are worthy for who you are without any money. But money is the Measure from now on. There's a, I'll give you all a new definition of money for the rest of your lives, so you don't have to, so you can finally understand it. Money is merely the measure of the service you render. It's nothing to do with you. It's just the service you render is worth something. That's it. Like pull the plug out of money. Stop making it so powerful and just take it out of the, take the power cord out of the wall. It has nothing to do with you. It's just a, it's a measure, of, it's a, a numerical measure of goods, which in this case might be money, but it could be bartering. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, but it's a numerical measure of a service you render and nothing more than that. It's just the measure of the services. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Sorry to get so personal without you, us being in the seminar context. Normally I would never talk to somebody like that until he told me he was in and we're in the seminar. But uh, but I just I figured you could hack it. No, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Is that why, like, when rich people like go broke or lose all their money, they like a very easy time getting back on their feet? People who have the right context of it. You mean, so, like, people that when they have the right context for money, they just get right back up. It's amazing. 
I know people go bankrupt and you can find them 30 years later and they're just like, they're like on food stamps. And then I'll, I'll find someone else. He went, I, I know a guy who went bankrupt five different times. Every time I'd call him, I'd say, you know, I hope, not every time, one time I called him because I only met him after like the fourth bankruptcy. And I said to him, you know, hi, I heard you went bankrupt. So I just want to offer my, you know, a little comfort, you know, Rabbi Glazer calling from Jerusalem, this guy in Toronto. I'm like, I hope you're doing okay and bouncing back. And he's like, hey, that bankruptcy had nothing to do with me. And he's like, what, you think I invest my own money? I'm an entrepreneur. That was his answer. That also, in the end, I'm an entrepreneur. Meaning I come up with business ideas. I take people's money, put them in the ideas. And they win, they, they lose. Like, so far they lost. He bank, bank, went, then he started something else, went bankrupt. And then he started something else. He did so well that he moved his entire family and built a home here in, in Eretz Israel. I'm not mentioning the city because I've said too much already. So, but he, he lives here in Eretz Israel with his family. Baruch Hashem. And counts his money. Whereas I could literally split screen it with someone who went bankrupt and that was it. Because self-worth has everything to do with money. I know another guy, you want to hear a crazy story? This is really crazy. This was a guy in his 60s who came to Israel on a trip in his 60s, meets Rav Noach Weinberg of Eishat Torah's Zatzal. Oh, sorry. He goes bankrupt loses his money, comes on a trip, meets Rav Noach Weinberg. And this guy's from a family that everything, your entire worth is whatever your bank account says. That's who you are. Like, it's not just what you're, it's who you are. And your worth is, you're literally the, the balance sheet, the bottom line on the balance sheet is who you are and what you're worth, period. Like hardcore capitalists and generations of them. And he goes bankrupt, he loses everything. But before the bankruptcy actually hit him, he flew off to Israel for a trip, meets Rav Noach Weinberg, becomes observant. New Balchuva, 60 years old. So everything was great, like no bankruptcy, because he suddenly got into God and Torah and, and like started getting his act together on what is truly valuable, right? So he flies back to New York. And now he's like got a keep on his head. He's got sitzes, he's got his tefillin. He's davening three times a day. He's going to Minions. He learned here for half a year. Gets back to New York. And what happened was he was thinking, hey, you know, I never went to university. Maybe I'll go to university. Now, had he asked me that, I would tell him, absolutely do not go to university. To, meaning go to university, that's fine, but don't study Jewish studies. I'm sorry, I missed that part. He, when he, he said, I'll go to university and study Jewish studies. Now that I'm so into Judaism. If you're into Judaism, where do you study? Yeshiva. Yeshiva. He went to university. What, what do they have in university in the Jewish studies? You have people called Bible critics. You know what Bible critics are? Bible critics are people who try to figure out how we can prove that God did not write the Bible. Now, how do you think a Bible critic does face-to-face with Rav Mati? No, Dr. Jerusalem. Mati Berger. How do you think a Bible critic does face-to-face with Mati Berger? How do you think he survives? Well or falls apart? Completely falls apart. We've got to watch this in person many, many years ago. They, they, last, they, they don't even last five minutes against someone who knows this stuff. How, how do you think, how do you think a, the biggest Bible critic at Hebrew University, how long do you think he would survive against Rabbi Moshe Zeldman? Rabbi Aaron Neckemeyer? None at all. 
And that's why it's very hard. It was a miracle we got to see Rebbe Monty Berger because they would do everything in their power not to be in that confrontation because they would never stand a chance, not even for a minute. The very first thing that would come out of their mouths would be refuted in 30 different ways. And been, they would leave a laughing stock. But this six-year-old man went and did it. He didn't ask me. He flew to New York, went back to his life, put his house up for sale, because obviously he couldn't afford this house anymore, and went to university. Now, the people at the university were telling him that man wrote the Torah. Man wrote the Bible. With all their little proofs that hold no water. Man wrote the Bible. And so what happens is he's there. This guy was a major sports fanatic with like 50-yard lines. The New York, uh, where the football team are there? Jets? The 50-line of the Jets. You know, half court, seven rows back at the Mets. You know, this guy's a full sports fanatic with like a gigantic screen that's off every Shabbos with the biggest games of the year is playing. Yom Tovim with big games. And he's like, you imagine the reward he's getting to not turn on that screen because he only thinks sports day and night. Except once he started hearing from the professors, man wrote the Torah. And then it was, I don't know, it was like the World Series or this, that, or the, I don't know what was going on. It was a big game. And he put the television on a timer. Or no, he just kept it on all Shabbos, turned off the volume. But it was a slippery slope. And he finally fell all the way. Fell all the way. Now, here's the part of the story that you probably totally forgot we were talking about. There was a tidal wave, like 300 feet high, called bankruptcy, when you think money's what you're worth. Think about the family he's from. Money's what you're worth. He was able to push that water back for a good year and a half. And he, all he wanted to do was watch a game. And he let the professors in the university get that TV slowly turned on until he was already with a remote control in his hand, flipping around to games, driving out, apologizing because his wife did tshuva too. Apologizing to his wife, listen, you know, I can't be at the Shabbos meal because such and such a game. Now she's alone. To this day, they're in their, now they're in their 80s. She's still alone on Shabbos. And, and he's at this game and that game and the other game. And, but what he didn't realize was there was a 300-foot tidal wave waiting. And the second he... It didn't take literally more than a month of, of stopping to keep Shabbos. That, that gigantic wave of transgenerational capitalism of, like, you're worth your money. And your money is your worth. Just goes like, boom! And just destroys him for the next 40 years. Or, sorry, he was 60, now he's, now he's 90. I guess he's turning 90 this year. So how many years? 30 years? For the next 30 years, he gets taken down. But, like, taken down bad. It was amazing how Judaism held that wave up for a year and a half. And it would have kept going. would have kept going. Because he was just learning more Torah and learning more Torah. Learning more Torah. But then... It's a disastrous story. But it's a big lesson for us. Is you got to get yourself worked out. On what money is. It's the measurement of one's services as rendered in the eyes of others. It's in the eyes of others, okay? <laughs> what can you do about that? I mean, they're the ones giving the money, so that's going to be in their eyes. 
and it's uh, but your actual worth comes from the soul comes from your the fact that you're created in the image of God and this is why the seminar work that I do with people which this is a little excerpt from it is just to get everyone like finally committed so we can actually grow together because you can't do a seminar on that level without full commitment people have to be in no matter what I can't have someone leaving in the middle we once had a guy in Toronto leave in the middle. <laughs> he didn't realize that that wasn't going to be very effective. So, so we get in there and we're all together. And you know, I got three big whiteboards and the room's set up. And, and, uh, and we're sitting there and I'm, I'm like, I feel like someone's missing. And it turns out a guy decided to run. We had a runner. It's called a runner. So we had a runner. And I'm like, hmm. And everyone's looking at me like, what are we going to do? Because we're fully committed. So it turned out his wife was simultaneously doing the seminar in the daytime. This was night. The men were at night, the women were by day. Called his wife. She said, I tried. He's not coming. He's like sitting in our living room, you know, like learning Klamish. And I'm like, I'm like, okay. I hang up the phone. Oh, I got her address. Hang up the phone. I said, okay, everybody, in the cars. <laughs> we took the boards. We threw all the boards in the car and all the equipment, and we um, everyone jumped in in their cars. We drove over forty minutes. We managed to pick up some beer and, and uh, Chinese on the way, and um, <laughs> a little longer than forty minutes because we had to pick up beer and Chinese. Um, and the and we drove across town, and we're all lined up coming down his stairs like to the street, and you know we're all in our black hats and coats because there were several of us were you know black hat wears and especially the front guys so I knock on the door and he comes to his door and he sees that it, on the top it had an arched window a little above he sees like all these hats so he's like I've never had this many schnorrers at once <laughs> he thinks it's fundraisers from you know Israel coming so he's like I've never had this many schnorrers before and he opens the door he sees me and the whole seminar behind me and we all just walk we didn't say anything I just walked right by him. I didn't ask if I could come in. He said he's in. I'm in. He told the room. He told us he was in. If he said he's in, I'm in. I don't care if we're going to end at one in the morning because we had to take an extra hour to get there. And also the whole group was in. No one even batted an eyelash. No one said, hey, why should we drive 40 minutes extra and 40 minutes back later for a guy who didn't even really commit to all of us? I said, because you said you're in. And when you're in, we're all in. And let's go prove to a guy that we're in for him. By the time we were all sitting in his living room, we had to bring chairs from everywhere. We had chairs from his kitchen. We had like bing bags. We had, we had his living room couches. Like we're, we're all set up in his, in his living room. Boards are set up. By the time we were all set up, he, was, he burst out crying. Because his breakthrough was that no one was ever in for him. No one was ever in in his life. And he got the breakthrough of what it's like to be, to have people actually commit to him and be in there for him no matter what. That was his breakthrough for the seminar. is because his story was, I'm, I'm not important. That was his deep story. That was the narrative of his life where he literally lived his whole life seeing through the eyes of, I don't matter. And all of a sudden, for the first time, he saw how much he mattered. It was a powerful, powerful moment. You know, since we're on the subject, um, I, I get a runner like once a year, and uh, it's always super powerful. 
Like it's always like I know when there's a runner, like we're about to have like the most powerful seminar ever, because we're not going to go on. We don't go on without it. It's just the rule. We're not going on without it. And so, <laughs> I made the mistake of running the seminar. No offense if you're from LA listening to this, um, but I made the mistake of running the seminar once in Los Angeles. <laughs> now, the, can I tell you a little rule of thumb in Los Angeles? You can find this, by the way, on the web under the personality disorder called narcissist. So I ran the seminar in L.A. And, and so I'll just tell you the rule of thumb instead of the fancy word narcissist. The, way, the rule in L.A. is you only do what feels good. You only do what feels good. I know that's also in the Webster's Dictionary under the definition of, of children. Because think about it. What's, what are your lives, everybody? How, do you, how, do you, how can you categorize your life? You do stuff that feels good. You do stuff that doesn't feel good. And that's how you get somewhere. The stuff that feels good, I suggest creating as a reward for the stuff that doesn't feel good. Create the stuff that feels good as your reward for all the stuff you have to do that doesn't feel good. But if you ever want to make anything of yourself, you better get used to stuff that doesn't feel good. But here I was running my seminar, which does not feel good. It's very difficult. It's painful, weak. Here I was running in L.A. Like, I don't know how I got convinced, but I guess I left L.A. so many years prior that I forgot about this whole issue. Guess how many runners I had out of 30 people? I had five runners out of 30. I mean, I, I'm lucky to get a runner a year out of, like, hundreds of participants. I get a runner a year. 30 people, I have five runners. And guess what? If you're a runner, you better have a damn good reason to why you're running because I'm going to beat it. No matter how good it is, I will win the conversation. Guess what? All five had the same exact reason why they ran. You ready? Why? It's crazy that they all five said this. I literally was going to like, I was going to fly out in the middle of the seminar, except I was in. When I heard their reason, all five people had the same reason. And it was all different times during the week. But you know what the reason was? I don't want to. I don't want to. One of the women was like 32 and single. And I was like, so when you get married and you have a diaper to change, but you don't want to. Or you're going to labor, and but you don't want to. Car's out of gas, but you don't want to. Got an important appointment at 9 in the morning, but you don't want to. You imagine what your life would look like if you only did what you wanted. <laughs> what would your life look like? You'd have a lame life. And you'd feel dead inside. You'd spend the majority of your income on therapy. Now, the... Why am I talking about that? I don't know. Oh, we're talking about runners. Yeah, sorry. I'm off on a tangent. Is it after four, Rabbi? Yeah. Let people sponsor you. Let people de develop you. Take money with pride. Take money with pride when you're young. If it builds you, and when you have money, when you're older and you have money, build others with your money. It's our pleasure to give. The services we render are our pleasure. The fact that you get paid is merely a measure of what someone else saw it's worth. 
You have complaints about the money you're making? Focus on the service. See if you can somehow optimize your service in a way that people would give more for it. Push your limits into the world of suffering a bit so that the world pushes back a bit so that you get a sense of who God is because it's going to make you have to ask the important questions. Why you're going through what you're going through. And as you ask those questions, you come to amazing, amazing discoveries and your emuna in Hashem gets finally filled in with real answers about life and about God and how God interacts with us. Also become knowledgeable in Judaism such that you're not in doubt all the time and feeling the struggle of even keeping basic Jewish tradition. You shouldn't have to struggle that. You can study. Spend time studying so the, the basics are in your back pocket. And be committed in your lives. If you want to see large siyata d'shmaya in your life, if you want to get real siyata d'shmaya, if you want God to blow his divine wind into your sails, put your whole being into stuff. When you're in, you're in. All the way. Go all the way with things. And you'll see that you'll live a very, very successful life. May you be blessed. Amen. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.